0: Hey there, everybody! This is Josh Rayner, editor in chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get ten percent off your ticket purchase by using the code DC News at checkout. That's DC. N E W S at checkout to save ten percent off your tickets for Wizard World, and that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com/tickets and use the code DC News for ten percent off. And another week is coming gone. Another slew of DC comic books have hit the shelves. And now comes the hard thing, the challenge. The part where, if you're me, you have to pick five books. Five books that you feel represent what you most enjoy, what you like the best, what you recommend the most about comic books as an art, as a medium, as a form. And to do so, just like every week, I go to the spinner rack. I go to that interdimensional rack from my childhood, spinning there in the distance, and I pick my five books. Because this is the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number eight, and I'm your host, Seth Singleton, where we take a look at five books, talk about them, laugh about them, maybe even criticize them, and give you a reason to consider, if you haven't already, why this is a book you should be picking up this week. So to kick things off, we're gonna get started with my first choice, my book number one that I'm pulling from the spinner rack, and for this week I've gone ahead and chosen Hawkman number 12. Now, if you haven't been keeping up, Hawkman's been doing some things that really I've tried to cover on a few episodes of The Spinner Rack because I feel this book is one that continues to do things that need to be pointed out, given recognition, and shared with others. And the story up until now has been a journey for Carter Hall, the Hawkman of our present modern-day world, who has been tracing a series of keys and clues that link to his past lives and to the knowledge that he was once the leader of a terrible group known as the Deathbringers, and that he's now responsible for their eventual imprisonment, the many lives he's lived, to make up for the wrongs that he did when he led the Deathbringers. And now, to be the final stand when the Deathbringers come to Earth and are preparing to not only conquer it, but destroy it, under the leadership of their second leader, named Edom, who has sworn vengeance and ultimate suffering on his most hated immortal enemy, Carter Hall. At the end of Last Issue, Edom was preparing the Deathbringer machines to bring down a reign of destruction upon the city where they were positioned and eventually to the entire world. And after a climactic battle where Edom appeared to have gained the upper hand, he left Carter and called to his troops to return to their massive hawk-shaped robot ships and begin destroying the planet below. I was a little disappointed last time that I spoke about Hawkman and the ending of Hawkman number 11, because I felt that this movement by Edom to pull away from striking a death blow against Carter and instead creating what I called the James Bond villain scenario, which was enough time for Carter to come up with a solution as a fault. And yet, it was so beautifully handled moving into this next issue that it's really difficult to say that it was a fault in the end. So I've accidentally moved right into why I picked this issue, but I can finish my thought on why I picked this issue by talking about the fact that the lead up, the build up, the tracing of lines to establish all the different points in Carter's past has brought about a unique experience where in the last two issues Carter was able to summon forth all of those previous identities as fully fledged living beings in the present so that he could strike back against Hidam's soldiers and overturn this attempted destruction of Earth. And, I guess in my excitement, I have also moved right past the what's happening phase. But essentially, we've already covered that. (laughs) And the fun part is, I'm already knee deep in the why I like it phase. So, why stop now? Let's move right into my favorites starting with the story. For this issue, what I really loved was the way that Carter's identity and identities, that amazing undying will to fight, to survive, to never give up. And it's that will that's expressed at the beginning of the issue, when given the opportunity, Carter calls the rest of his many past lives to attack the Deathbringer ships and do everything they can to stop them from destroying the people below. And what I like the most about this moment in the story is how the different groupings of Hawkmen and versions of Carter Hall, Qatar Hall, and the different personalities he has brought to the present begin to coordinate with each other. The Hawkman of Hawkworld is very efficient, clear at directing troops, begins guiding the application and setting of charges and in the process this grouping of leadership and these small targeted strikes begin to nullify first one and then all of the Deathbringers. And I thought this was a really great moment because it also features Carter Hall defeating Edom and mentioning that he's not holding back this time, he's not trying to reason with the man, he's trying to defeat him. And in the process of defeating him, he forces Edom to declare Carter General of the Deathbringers. And as their previous and now present leader, he commands them to stop their attack, return to their ships, free their captives, and await his further orders. In a sense, He has not only defeated his enemy, but he has turned their defeat into an opportunity, a chance to use the soldiers standing now ready to serve him to potentially bring about a change, if not a redemption, all of the things that Carter did in the past and for the many lives he's lived trying to make up for them. And perhaps what makes this moment so poignant is when Carter is able to meet with the first incarnation, the original Carter Hall, and a moment of recognition and reconciliation occurs. And in that moment, Carter is able to receive and, I guess, input all of the different parts of his history as a complete sequence of memories, something that he's only been able to piece together up until now. And in the doing so, I really feel that what's been offered here is a chance to take all of these different pieces from his past and make them a part of the fabric of his story moving forward. And the different arcs that can spin out of this can be as different as the Hawk World, Hawk Man, or... The version of Carter who once lived on Krypton and the different stories that each one has not only to tell, but the promises that are left to keep, the problems they face that may one day face Carter, creates just this huge opportunity to tell not only a volume, but a tapestry of the stories of Carter Hall and the many lives that lead to every experience, journey, or next adventure that he gets to face. And I also like that this is something that feels like a great new beginning, an opportunity to change everything, as he at one point even jokes with Madame Xanadu, the opportunity to change the nature of the Deathbringers, to which she jokingly says she likes the name Fruitbringers. And yet later, when Carter finds Idam held in a prison cell, Idam warns Carter that he's killed. He's a perfect weapon. And that because of that, he'll become someone who slaughters again, and there's nothing he can do to stop it. And yet, there's something about how Carter will now have to face what it means to have all this power and this potential bloodlust and to face all the different challenges that will be coming his way while also constantly, potentially, fighting this part of himself that is proven in the past to be extremely dangerous. But a comic book is a story told not only with words, but great art. And that allows me to talk about my favorite art in Hawkman number 12. I'm going to start with the uh, variant cover, which is just... A beautiful image with this great mixture of greens and then the flash of gold as Carter is battling a very impressive sea monster with many tentacles. And although appearing to be clearly in his clutches, Carter Hall does not appear phased or about to yield. In fact, the way his mace is lifted in his hand, it looks like he's just having a blast. I also love the Great Page 4 with the title and the image of so many Hawkmen following the instructions of Carter Hall as they begin to strike out and try to defeat this last assault by the Deathbringers. And that page is perhaps only matched by page 18, the sort of splash page that follows the exchange between Carter and his first self, his first identity, and the gift of his history, which is reflected on this splash page on 18 with a circle around Carter and these many pieces of history, these fragments scattered around him, showing the many lives he's lived and how they are now being folded into the identity of Carter Hall. Now, even for a great book, that doesn't mean that there weren't some moments that I felt fell into my least favorite category. And on the story side, the biggest challenge that I found was the sudden transfer of power from Edom to Carter of control of the Deathbringers as their general. And exactly what, if anything, they're doing as this sort of series of closing events with Carter visiting Edom and preparing to take his next journey, there's little mention of where the Deathbringers are currently waiting, how they are biding their time, and if there is any sort of resistance or pushback against the idea of a new general whose orders are to wait. Part of me thinks that this could have something to do with extreme discipline, and yet, given their bloodlust and the fact that their great weapons, the Deathbringer machines, have been incapacitated, I would imagine that there might be some ill will or a sense of resistance on their part. And yet it's not really addressed in any way that I felt could have staged the next issue. Although there was time to point out that Carter has gone through this great experience and is preparing for the next steps. I felt maybe a detail or two about how the current status of the Deathbringers could bring that to a nice conclusion and set things up for issues to come. Now on the art side, it's really hard to make a claim against anything that I found to be a a least favorite aspect. And yet, what really was a struggle for me was how powerful the images on page 4 and 18 were, and how while the other images throughout the book are Very good. None stuck out to me, pulled at me the way those two images did. And I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more of that sort of attention and craft and care to pull me in on some of the pages that, while they felt good compared to pages 4 and 18, they didn't feel just as amazing. And on page 13, when Carter is really forcing Edom to yield. This is a moment where that detail could have really driven home not only the struggle, but the finality of the moment when Edom yields control. But never one to end on a low note. It's my pleasure to say that I really enjoyed Hawkman number 12, and that on that score of 1-5, to five, 1 being the lowest, 5 being the best, I was very happy to put Hawkman number 12 at a 4.5. Now, if you're keeping score at home, the only way I'm going to know what your score is is if you find a way to tell me. We'll talk more about that at the end of this episode. And while the spinner rack is still spinning confidently, smoothly, I'm going to go ahead and pull my second pick for this week. And that's going to be Justice League Odyssey number nine, where, really, to move into the what's happening, it's easy to say just about everything. We've got a team of Starfire, Jessica Cruz, Azrael, and Cyborg on an unauthorized mission to the ghost sector. And As of last issue, the team was faced with the challenge of helping Darkseid potentially because of the fact that Darkseid might be the only option left, a god or god-like being who has the ability to operate on a cosmic level and who just might be the thing or the presence or the... God, (laughs) if you want to use that word, who can put together the pieces of what appears to be a very ancient plan that might just bring about the salvation of everything that the Justice League squad is fighting for. Now, if you've been keeping up with everything since the Justice League broke the source wall and are aware of all the different complications that is created, you're probably familiar with the challenge currently facing the team, the world, the universe, and even the ghost sector where they are. If not, I recommend backtracking just a bit until you've had a chance to catch up on a little bit more of why this mission is so important and why it just might mean a willingness to work with Darkseid. So why I picked this book is something that really makes me smile. It's simply the idea of this misfit, this really uh, unexpected combination of Justice League characters who are going on an unauthorized mission, and after going on it have continued to work towards achieving a goal that the Justice League did not approve of. And in many ways were probably rather they simply gave up and stopped And yet this team believes that it has a right, a reason, and I believe in the eyes of all of the members assembled, a sort of sense of guilt or a desire to make up for what they see as their contribution to the events that they are now currently facing, as though each of them somehow believes that they played the sole role in the destruction of the Source Wall, the release of Perpetua and so many other terrifying figures. But how that doesn't seem to get in the way of their ability to know what they believe and to use that to do something that might seem impossible and yet at the same time might only be accomplished by a group as unorthodox as these are. Now for a little taste of what happened at the end of last issue, simply put, Azrael started talking and as soon as he did, he had an effect on not only the soldiers attacking, who are actually members of the order from which he was created, but also Starfire's sister, who has been leaving Tameranian soldiers as Blackfire. And they've all stopped and listened to what Azrael had to say, and the power of his words has given Team a new sense of hope and a bit of leverage. Whereas before, they've simply been hunted and chased and been defending themselves without given the opportunity to prove that what they are doing is what they believe to be right. And just for good measure, at the end of last issue, Darkseid had escaped and Cyclops was in hot pursuit only to realize that when faced with the challenge of what to do next, he might have to side with Darkseid for a short-term or even a long-term objective. And I'm gonna slide right into my favorites on the story side with the idea of Azrael's voice and its power as not just a prophet or uh, a messianic figure, but as a leader and as someone coming into their own and how this changes the dynamic, not only of the team, but of their understanding of what he's doing and what that means and how powerful it is for all of them. This also brings some conflict and resistance from characters like Jessica who doubt why it is that Azrael's actions should suddenly be followed and her confusion at the response of someone like Starfire who believes that Azrael is simply coming into his own and beginning to represent and embody all of the things that he's been capable of without ever being aware that he was essentially the most powerful figure on the team. In addition is the realization by Cyclops that he has to fight tooth and nail against creatures left behind in defense by the evil or at least the dangerous Brainiac, and that the revelation of the information he's able to uncover convinces him that he has to follow Darkseid's plan, and that Darkseid's right, and that the only thing left to do is to give him all the help they can. Now, when it comes to my favorites for the art, I'm gonna start with page four, and this great shot of Azrael standing on a mound, Jessica Cruz behind him, ships in the distance and all around him are soldiers kneeling and the gravity and the weight of that moment is really represented expertly in that scene and the details that show just how powerful this experience not only is for Azrael, but for those who are suddenly compelled to follow his command i also really like the great series of images on pages 8 through 12. Featuring Victor, a.k.a. Cyborg, fighting Brainiac's hordes and the way he employs different weapons while trying to find the source of data that he believes will provide not only he, but Darkseid with the tools they need to bring about either the defeat of just Brainiac or to bring about the establishment of Darkseid as a cosmic figure who can do the work only he can do and that the Justice League needs him to do. And the way that Vic demonstrates all the different ways that his weapons and his thinking can get him not only out of situations, but gain the upper hand against some pretty impressive creatures, including one that is a combination of all of Brainiac's individual defensive creatures into one massive monster who is intent on flattening young Victor beneath its foot. Of course, a book like this is going to have some challenges when it positions its characters in a situation in which they have to trust an enemy who, at least by all evidence demonstrated in history, cannot be trusted. And this is matched by the challenge, especially facing Jessica Cruz, with what does it mean when Azrael appears to have the ability to compel people. And while it was demonstrated with Blackfire that this um, urge to obey is something that can actually be fought, that it overrides the will of the person, is almost completely missed by Starfire during an exchange with her sister. And the only thing Starfire seems to take away is that her sister believes she's working with Darkseid and she's working against her. And Cory Coriander, Starfire, is a character who I expect to be a little more questioning, a little bit suspicious, and just a little bit more of a steady thinker or reasoner. And so without much explanation, the, this moment when she doesn't recognize the challenge facing her own sister and then later seems so comfortable just letting Azrael take charge... It feels a bit inauthentic when Starfire faces off with Jessica and appears to give a series of either platitudes or polite understanding, not quite condescending, but certainly echoes of condescending in her response and treatment of Jessica's concerns and the reasons why she raises them. Simply put, it feels strange that Jessica would bring up these concerns, and that Starfire's response would not be more authentic. And yet, at the same time, it feels as though what's happening with Starfire is simply her reaction to Azrael's language and his voice, and that that's not something that Jessica has been shared. But if there was just a hint as to maybe what it is about Jessica that causes her to not be willing to give in so easily or be so accepting, might make it more interesting and deepen the degree of tension between not only her and Starfire, but her and Azrael and the rest of the members of the team. While I enjoyed many of the parts of the art in this story, I did have a bit of a challenge with a splash page on page 18 in which Victor has finally gained the information he was looking for and appears to be holding it as a ball or a charge in his hand. But that moment feels a bit strange because until we actually move into the next page, into a smaller panel, it's unclear exactly what it is he's holding. And even when that smaller panel on page 19 reveals more about the shape of the object in his hands, It also creates just as much mystery, and I think it would have been just as powerful to show a very clear shot of the object and allow the reader to sort of take it all in, because the details alone in a complete picture can create a greater mystery than the details that are obscured. And sometimes putting the obvious right in front of the reader is a bigger challenge than Hiding pieces of it and only revealing some at a later point. Now, while I feel this deepens the mystery when it comes to the understanding shared between Cyborg and Azrael about what to do with this new source of data, it also feels like putting it out there for Jessica and the reader to just stare at and puzzle over could have been a really fun mystery, much like a, a locked door or a locked room mystery, in which it should be so obvious, and yet at the same time, because it isn't, either myself or other readers alike are scratching their heads, doing their best to figure out just what could be happening. I'm not sure if it's an opportunity missed, but it's one that I felt could have been explored, and until I see reasoning and the issues to follow for the moment, I I have to mark it as something that, could have been done differently to provide just a little bit more in this issue. And until I can understand why, it's going to feel like a a weaker moment that could have been either developed more or been presented in a way that could have been been more effective. Now, even with those least favorite moments on the story and art side, I had no problem giving Justice League Odyssey number 9 a solid 4. And I believe it's setting up a lot of great things, even if I would have liked to have seen a few pieces done just a little differently. For my third book that I've chosen from the spinner Wreck, I decided to go with flash number 70. I really enjoyed so much about the opportunity to pick up this book and to see what's going on. that. It's easy for me to blow right into why I like it, why I picked it, but let me catch you up on what's been going on. Essentially, Flash just overcame a great struggle, and while it didn't resolve or involve a capture of the villain known as Jesse James, or Trickster, as he's more commonly known, it did result in The Flash coming through a great challenge and doing what he always does, saving the people of his city from greater harm, even if it didn't involve catching the bad guy this time around. And with that came an opportunity to pause and look back on the moments that led to Barry Allen becoming The Flash and what it was like for him to become a hero, and also what that means and the revelations that will be uncovered that can be used as a source or reference point for the next arc of storytelling that's about to begin, which makes it so easy to move right into why I picked this book. When I first read The Flash, I picked up with Wally West, and following his death in issue number 49 and his rebirth in issue number 50. I remember a moment when a year one story arc began and at first I wasn't excited about it but quickly I began to see just how important it was to look back on a character's beginnings and origins and to see through a different pair of eyes just what was important to that character that might not have been told previously and how that informs the storytelling that'll be moving forward. But also for me it felt like that year one story made Wally more human to me. It made him someone I could relate to someone that I could care about, someone that I could connect and engage with better through that storyline. And that's why I was excited to pick up this book and after reading it, why I was so pleased to share it for this edition of The Spinner Rack. Let's go ahead and move right into my favorite story parts. I love the idea of Barry as this young, hopeful person and how it's echoed by his mother that he's always hopeful and she wants that whatever happens in his life for him to never lose that. This is something that appears to stay with him as we see Barry Allen as a CSI before the moment of his accident and the fact that at this time in his life he's really struggling with maintaining that hopefulness that optimism, that ability to see the next horizon, and the light and possibility that exists there. And how in that process, he found himself standing in his lab, working on not only the long term plan to try and find the man responsible for killing his mother and prove his father's innocence, but also to try and accept or recognize or process just what it means to be the person that those events created and the impact they had on the person he is and why it's also so difficult for him to make a connection with a woman like Iris who appears to be interested and yet he simply can't find a way to bring himself to respond In a way that not only it seems he wants to, but in a way he knows that she would like him to. And this is also a great framework, because what happens next is something that's legendary. And Barry Allen's exposure to lightning and the speed force and the way that he first experienced speed and its impact on his life is documented in a really fun way here. And what I enjoyed the most following his accident is the way that he uses his CSI training to work the problem, to use his body as a crime scene and examine evidence until he can get closer to a sense of understanding. And the way that we get to see him process this information and record it and understand not only the potential of his powers but the dangers that come with them removes some of the exuberance that often clouds an origin story when a character experiences all their powers and begins to move with elation at the experience of them and the the joy of having them and the wonder of all that they can do. His is balanced with the measured scientific approach. And that's a part of Barry Allen that is always evident, but isn't always presented in the uh, descriptions of his origin. But when it comes to the art, and my favorite moments in this book. It's really hard not to notice just how many great scenes exist here. I mean, starting with that great splash page on 12, when Barry is struck by the lightning, and how on 11, the moment preceding it is the power going out, and Barry looking at his phone, thinking about Iris, cast in shadow and dark, and on page 10, this sudden explosion. And this beautiful splash page, just rich with color and at the same time completely controlled and influenced by this bolt of lightning, not only tearing through the page, but Barry and everything about who he was. There's also a lovely moment on page 12 in the top panel when Barry wakes up and cries out as though he is experiencing his last waking moment in the present and as he does he's suddenly aware that he's in the hospital and there's a great montage as we get to see Barry sort of leaping from setting to setting unaware of how he's gotten there or what he's supposed to do now and I love that in the scenes that demonstrate him experiencing and testing his powers His expressions range from shock and confusion to outright joy and determination. And it's the talented artwork that really brings this to light. And it sets up a great moment when later the Flash suddenly finds himself in a different time facing a future version of himself with this great image of... Barry, well, looking quite ragged, but also like quite the amazing speedster, and I can only imagine just how these images are going to play out in chapter two of this year one story arc. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't a few moments that I wouldn't mind seeing just a little better from this issue and on my least favorite story side i really struggled with the idea that barry couldn't understand why iris was interested in him and what made it challenging is that there isn't really a timeline for how long iris has been trying to get his attention and has been rebuffed and what sort of in depth that can already create for their relationship I think that any sort of reference he could have made to how long she's been trying to get his attention and how long he's been confused by her attempts, let alone her interest, might have really added to the idea of how persistent she might be or just how long this has really been going on. I've struggled and struggled and I can certainly say that it was hard to find uh, a weak moment on the art side of this issue but that I can honestly settle on the bottom half of page 14. It's uh, a series of four panels in the middle, followed by three at the bottom. And it's an interaction with August, who is now a detective and previously was a B-Cop. And in it, it feels just for a moment as though all of the great detail and expression is muted in some way not only for Barry but for August who appears just a little uneven and it's difficult to read what if any emotion is exchanged in the sort of friendly hugging and conversation that feels like it's brushing over something bigger But without that sort of detail to the facial features, it's really hard to read if that's actually what's going on or if this is just a a moment in the story that feels like it's not supposed to feel like anything, even though later it's supposed to mean so much more. But even a moment like that simply wasn't enough to pull me away from all of the great things about this issue. And I'm happy to say that while I might be biased as a Flash fan, It was my pleasure to rank Flash number 70 as one of my top five for this week, but also as a book to receive the score of five. Now, if you think you have a different score, I'd love to hear it. But for now, your score is going to remain a secret until you share it with me and with all of us here at DC Comics News. Like I said, we'll be talking more about that soon. So listen all the way to the end so you can find out how. Now, it's true that as we approach these final two issues, the spinner rack might be slowing down. It might be oscillating and rotating just a little bit slower in recognition of the final two books to make the list this week. For number four, I went ahead and chose Wonder Woman number 70. Now, regarding what's been going on, essentially, Wonder Woman has been on a quest, and... This journey has led to the discovery of a child of the gods, who is both male and female, named Atlantiades, who is of the Erods and represents the living image of desire and union, who is both male and female, and believes that this beauty extends beyond all other mortal desires. And because of this, Atlantiades has arrived in a small town and infected it with passion and love and desire that have altered the natural ecosystem of this community. And in the process, despite claims to free people from their inhibitions or their restraints, caused them to embrace their passions so fiercely that the negative sides or the Negative outcomes of their actions and reactions have created as much discord as Atlantietis promises to provide peace and opportunity through this version of freedom. In many ways, it's the story of a mother trying to connect with her child and also forced to answer for the mistakes that all parents will end up making with their children. And in that process, find a way to not only come to grips with that, recognize it, and try to either seek forgiveness or find another way forward if there's any hope of having a relationship with that child. And I think it's really easy for me to say that that's the reason I chose this book, that at the end of the last issue, when it was revealed That it was Atlantiades who was in charge of the chaos in this town. And that it was in response to Atlantiades' mother and the treatment that mom thought was something that would benefit them both, but actually cause more harm. And in doing so, has driven a wedge between them that not only Wonder Woman, but her party... Are trying to solve. And that is one of the favorite things that I love about the story here. In so many ways, the relationship between Diana and her mother is so important to the foundation of her character. And yet, that is something that is not touchstone or a reference or a source that Wonder Woman can rely on when trying to help Atlantiates. Especially because Atlantiates is willing to draw upon Diana's fears and demonstrates this with the appearance of Steve her long-lost love and the man who Diana said she was in love with and for that reason was unwilling to give in to the desires of Atlanteans and after wonder woman experiences a moment of doubt that is manifested in this personage of Steve Trevor that it is something that she can control. And when Steve Trevor's image appears before her again, she begins by describing that she loves him and recognizing that that's what she first should have begun with. And it's that moment when Diana recognizes her power that both she and Atlantiades are faced by an angry town that feels betrayed by Atlantiades who promised them all that they could desire, but as was evidenced in last issue and is now becoming clear in this issue, that isn't actually true. And for many of the members of this town, following their desires has destroyed the life they so enjoyed. And in the midst of that ruin, they are angry, hurt, and looking for someone either to blame or to make things right. Which is why, at the end of the issue, Valentiades and Wonder Woman are facing down an angry crowd and trying to figure out just how it is they're going to bring this to a peaceful resolution. Now, for my favorite elements of the art in this issue, I can start with page two and this really great variant cover and move right into the way that the colors and the shading and uh, a softness to the features of every character in this book is something I really enjoyed. It's almost as though they're all experiencing the sort of glow of glamour lighting that might be a residue of the influence of Atlantiades And it provides this great sheen that is like a lens over the story. And through that lens, it's easier to see how this world that they've entered feels so separate, strange, different, and foreign from what they've come to know. And I think it also illustrates how the rules to operate or achieve or even bring about change in this world are reflected in that sheen and will be demonstrated either further on in this issue as I believe the hints provide, but also in the later chapters of this arc. None of this sheen can diminish the moments on page 8 and 9 with Diana soaring through the sky among the birds and then her sudden interaction with Atlantiades, who appears on at least two occasions to be reading Diana's mind. But it is a lens that brings into question those moments when Atlantiades seems to be too ready, too eager, too willing to demonstrate all that she is and does and can be not only for the people of this town, but for Diana, who has rebuffed her advances and who in many ways is perhaps a challenge to what so far has been an easy adjustment for all of the other people. And the challenge to... All of this is the revelation that the temple devoted to Atlantiades appears unkempt and also to have some very dark and foreboding corners that, once explored, can potentially provide some unsavory elements that might not be either visible to Atlantiades or something that she's willing to admit to right away, but will no doubt become a larger part of the story as we move into the next issue. But in this issue, despite all of the glowing praise I gave just moments ago, there were a few things I'd like to point out in the story that fell into my least favorite category. And the first is actually the brief reference to the idea of what this dark corner that is shown in the Temple of Atlantiades and how it might be something significant or might not. And yet at the same time, only its discovery is given recognition. And in no way is there any hint provided that might allude to just how serious the dangers could be lurking in the next issue. I'm not going to say that it's a moment that's missed, but it's certainly a moment that could have been delved into and explored just enough to present a threat or another source of information or a description that would heighten the tension and increase the degree of expectation or anticipation for issue number 71. And on a small note, I struggled with the idea of Diana being so easily torn by the response of Steve Trevor to her own fears about what their future might hold. And the fact that she's so willing to allow him to say that potentially they have no future because he's immortal and she's not. Given all the things that Diana has faced and overcome... It would seem that this is something she would not only be prepared for, but something that she might handle better. and I am willing to concede that the influence of the town could be having a greater impact on her emotions, even more than she's fully aware of, or even Atlantiades, And yet, at the same time, for a warrior who has proven herself in so many other ways, this moment of hesitation, while humanizing, also felt uncharacteristic. But finding elements in the art that were my least favorite was actually really difficult with this issue because of so many ways that the environment seems to inform the art. And through that, the idea that every element of the art is a reflection of that environment and that so many of the pieces that I might've brought into question or considered with a more speculative eye, I'm only able to Enjoy an experience as part of this world and to eventually maybe look back on as part of the entire arc if I'm looking for a moment where I feel that the art doesn't really ring true. But in this issue, so much of it felt so well connected to the environment where the story was taking place that even the moments that I might normally question or feel are lacking in detail or specificity or shaping, shading, or tone don't exist and it was something that made this uh, such an enjoyable read because without those distractions I could simply give myself over to the story and the art allowed me to do that. I'll be honest I struggle with my score on this one but it was a pleasure to assign Wonder Woman number 70 A solid 4.5. Something that I'm proud to give and am happy to talk about more should you reach out and let me know just what your score might be. And with the spinner rack slowly winding down, I'm brought to my fifth and final book. And it's my pleasure to talk about Detective Comics number 1003. Now, you might need a little bit of review if you haven't been keeping up with the story so far. Essentially, the Arkham Knight has made a first move against Gotham and Batman in Detective Comics number 1001. That fight came to a standstill at the mid to three-quarter point of Detective Comics 1002. And after that standstill, there was a sense of pause or regrouping on both sides. But that's not the way that Detective Comics number 1003 starts off. It opens with Batman searching for Damien, because not long after the day bomb set off by the Arkham Knight and the Arkham Knight soldiers illuminated Gotham and then was extinguished, Damien has been unavailable or unable to be reached. And this is a story about what is happening to the rest of the Bat family after the initial assault on the Dark Knight himself. Now, why I chose this is something that I have no problem admitting, and that is that this story has me hooked. I've been intrigued from the opening pages of Detective Comics number 1001, Even before that with the brief story in Detective Comics number 1000 about the Arkham Knight. But the way that Batman was so relentlessly pursued in 1001 and then the sudden standoff in 1002 really caught my attention, which is why I wanted to pick up number 1003 and see just where the story was going to go next. Because it might be easy to simply have Batman and the Arkham Knight face off. But by moving the story in a different direction, by widening the lens, and considering how the Bat family might also be under attack or be responding to this attack, is a great moment that needed to be explored. And doing so with Damien in this issue made this a really great read. And why I wanted to save it for my last book, or my book number five for the spinner rack. Now, it's hard not to go into every little aspect of the story, but there are so many parts that are my favorites that I'm just going to choose a few and allow you as the reader to experience the rest in the way that all readers love to do, which is by reading the comic themselves. But among my favorites in the story that I want to talk about for this episode begins with the capture of Damien and the attempted interrogation by the Arkham Knight, who is revealed to be a blonde woman, blue eyes, and who offers Damien a chance to join her, to no longer be corrupted by a dark symbol like Batman. But her negotiation is disrupted by two of her soldiers who fire upon Damien and allow him to move into an attack position before giving up the weapon that he was able to pull away from one of the soldiers. And when he does so, to then face off against the Arkham Knight, who offers him the chance to leave of his own will, where he is discovered by Batman after putting a R symbol into the sky and meeting with his mentor on a rooftop. And what I love about this story is the way that Damien is so unshaken and actually appears to be emboldened by his attack or by the attack that he experienced, his capture, and his sense that no matter what is going on, he has the upper hand. And the way he expresses this when communicating with the Arkham Knight or later with Batman is really just a testament to how a great character can drive a story. And I love that the relationship between father and son, though not traditional, feels very strong here. And it also sets up a great comparison when at the end of the issue, Damian and Batman discover that the Arkham Knight is actually Astrid Arkham and that her father knows why it is that the soldiers she's leading will follow her to the ends of the earth. And I can only imagine how this juxtaposition of father and son and father and daughter can play out really in so many different ways in the next issue, but how establishing the relationship between Robin and Batman in this issue will provide that great demonstration or template for comparison when we get a chance to learn more about Darkham in issue number 1004. On the art side, so many great things that I really enjoy, whether it's the shape of Batman's cowl and ears and how in the last two issues it was something that I didn't enjoy as much and yet somehow it seems to fit more completely. I also really like the way that Damien's sort of determination and almost mocking expression shines through, no matter the fact that his eyes are obscured by his mask and by the white covering that protects his eyes from being viewed. And how this seems mirrored by the the grim smiles from Batman, almost a recognition or appreciation of the strength of his sidekick, his son, um, a young man who believes that he can one day be as great, if not better, than the man he's following. I also like that it leads to this great example of father and son sharing a seminal memory, like driving together. When Damien gets a chance to take the wheels of the subterranean vehicle and under a hue of green lighting, they charge through the sewers beneath Arkham as they prepare for an assault in response to the Arkham Knight's attack on Batman and Damien. I'd also be remiss if I didn't point out that the variant cover, this great montage of all these different characters who are so important and familiar in the life of Batman and the Bat family is cast in this great reddish hue and the red coloring and the black outlines and the shading and inking just make this cover something that that stands out in a way that doesn't really echo elements within the book But provide a great additional visual that adds to the allure and the sort of mystery of just what's happening in this story. And what this character called the Arkham Knight really wants. Now on the story side, there were a few least favorite moments. But overall, the one that stuck out for me that I want to focus on today has to do with the Arkham Knight who is a challenging character. Once she's unmasked there's an attempt to establish just who it is that exists under that mask and there's a confusion in ideology when she allows Robin to escape after holding him prisoner but appears to make the decision to allow him to escape based on the actions of her soldiers who fire upon Damien without being ordered to do so and who appear to force her hand although it also feels like this was a decision she was already willing to come to depending on how events played out and yet later when the Arkham Knight punishes the two soldiers who fired upon Damien by having Phosphorus or perhaps Dr. Phosphorus as he is professionally known come out and appear to scar them but not kill them for their crime or their disobeyance of her orders. Almost feels like a, a demonstration for the criminals who are staring out from their cells at everything that's happening around them. And perhaps is an opportunity for them to begin making a decision as to whether or not they would be willing to follow someone like the Arkham Knight. And my biggest challenge with this is I would believe that someone who is as determined as the Arkham Knight appeared in Detective Comics 1001 would not need to rely on such tactics, that there would be more of a join me or die, which is actually the great image on the original cover for this issue of the Arkham Knight holding Damien with a sword at his throat, screaming join me or die but that's not who we see in the issue as is clearly demonstrated she's willing to allow Damien to go and then to punish soldiers who didn't follow her orders but were acting in a way that would say that they expected that that's what they should do if someone refuses to follow as Damien did. I don't mind inconsistency in a character But often it helps to understand why there's that inconsistency. And without a basis for the inconsistent actions of the Arkham Knight, it's really hard to get a sense on the character and my feelings about the character. And while I'm intrigued by her actions up to this point, in many ways the power and force demonstrated in the last two issues is weakened by this almost non-committal. And this parent hesitation is something that feels like a weakness, not only for the character, but in the character's development. As though, for some reason, this is a stall or a hesitation. In many ways, it feels like the writer's not quite sure where this character wants to go or where they would like to see them head. Now this was another book where I really struggled to find any least favorite moments in the art. However, what I did notice was a certain strangeness to the quality of the expressions on the features of the Arkham Knight. Of course, I now know she's Astrid Arkham and yet because of so much up to this point, I'm still familiar calling her the Arkham Knight. On page 15, She appears to express this unbelievable anger and outrage at the actions of her men. And it twists her features without actually twisting them. And I'm not sure if that actually makes sense. But her mouth opens wide. Her eyes appear to narrow. She's visibly shaking with emotion in response to how they behaved. But then... In the next panels, the remorse or disappointment feels shaded and shadowed in a way that's a little confusing. And then on page 16, she's almost mournful. But then move to page 17 and the statement that the soldiers' sons have set and it's time for them to be punished by the doctor her eyes and face seem so wow I guess unconscious would be the word it almost feels like she's having an out-of-body experience based on the expressions on her face and they feel so foreign compared to the control that while it's an attempt to demonstrate just how unstable she is it also makes her feel like she's not an authentic person almost like she's uh, someone who's been programmed or given a set of behaviors, and that pulls away from for me from the the sense of gravity that the Arkham Knight initially introduced with its first appearance, and also it feels like this character doesn't have to do this just because it's needed for the story to move forward. in my opinion it would probably be best if, now there's probably no easy way to, to try and get to this, but it would probably be best if she was consistent until there was an action that could be so clear in its description or its appearance that the change would seem validated or necessary. And yet somehow none of that was enough to make this book less than a 4.5 in my opinion but your score could be different and as I've mentioned there's really only one way for me to know now as I mentioned the spinner rack is an interdimensional place existing outside of space and time which is why I'm always lucky enough that no matter where I am traveling like I am now or back home I can always access it Because it's a place that can be reached no matter where you are. And that goes the same for DC Comics News and the Spinner Rack. Because of how we exist as a website and a podcast, you can reach us from wherever you are. And we've got the ways for you to do that. Which is why I want to remind you that DC Comics News is available on all the major podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So after you've listened to this episode of The Spinner Rack, please head over and subscribe to this podcast and rate and review. I like five stars. How about you? And when you do, you can let us know, let me know, all about your scores. You can follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube by using at DC Comics News. To not only tag us with your comments, let us know you're out there, but let me know your scores for this and every episode of the Spinner Rack that you want to share with us. After all, it's my and our pleasure to share with you and getting to hear your thoughts, your opinions, and your feedback is one of the best parts about doing a recording, a podcast, and episodes just like this. And that brings us to a close of episode number eight of The Spinner Rack. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and I want to thank you for joining us once again for a trip through this week's issues from DC Comics and a chance to spin The Spinner Rack, pull five books, and talk about just why it is they're the books you'll find me talking about, sharing about, and maybe even bragging about. Join us next week for another great episode, and as always, read more comics.